Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello, my friends. Today's episode is an interview with Megan McGuire on European folkways and ancestor work. Megan is a folkways practitioner, a mother, a permaculture gardener, a ritual weaver, um, living on the lands of the Dakota people. Her ancestors came to this land primarily from Europe, like mine did as well and she is on a journey of unearthing and reclaiming their earth honoring practices especially their seasonal rituals and holy days she's also healing from religious trauma from her upbringing in evangelical christianity and really seeking to belong herself to the land and the waters through devotion and ritual and activism I wanted to have Megan on because I've learned so much from her work and appreciate it so much and recommend it to people all the time. (laughs) Um, What I hear from other white people so much when we talk about ancestral work and rooting into our own traditions rather than appropriating from other cultures is like, what are my traditions? I don't know what they are. We have Christianity and purity culture and like, what else do we have? And yeah i relate to that so much i felt like for so long the only culture in my family was christianity which i really didn't want to be part of and you know that's that's true in my family now but when i go way back i can touch the traditions of my european ancestors before christianity or coexisting with christianity or both of those things, and those are what I want to root into with, like Megan says in this episode, also bringing my modern lens to those traditions and that work because, yeah, just because something's old doesn't mean it's perfect. (laughs) We, um, We can integrate what we know now, what we have now, um, into working with yeah, traditions, rituals, holy days, etc. from the past and from our ancestors. So anyway, this episode is for (laughs) y'all. I hope it supports my life and my witchcraft practice have really changed by rooting more deeply into lineage and ancestor work and connecting to the land work and being in community around these things. And Megan speaks to all of these things so gorgeously and so powerfully. It's so much a conversation about paying attention to the land and to yourself and rooting deeply into ancestral tradition beyond maybe just like celebrating in bulk. Also, I just want to note, (laughs) my friend Becca said the other day, if you're listening to this, Becca, love you. We don't talk about the Christianity to witchcraft pipeline enough. (laughs) And I thought that was really funny and um, yeah, quite accurate and relevant to this episode and for both me and Megan's experiences. So in this episode, we talk about, of course, Megan's journey, working with folkways, applying new ideas to old ways why our religious parents were right about not letting us read Harry Potter, (laughs) connection with her European ancestors and their pagan traditions. We talk about what the wheel of the year is and the bioregional wheel of the year and making your own meanings, which I'm a huge fan of and is really important to me. 
belonging yourself to the land, the history of violence and colonization and our white ancestry, ancestor work and anti-racism, and why ancestor work is not inherently anti-racist, but it can be, connecting with European culture to feed us so we don't steal from other cultures, where to start connecting and researching with your ancestral traditions and practices, language as an ancestor, ancestral food, ancestral debt, and we close out with Megan sharing a bit about some European traditions in May or this time, spring, summertime, um, around Beltane. So yeah, on that note, just a gentle reminder that I'm holding a Beltane breathwork ceremony on Thursday night focused around love and pleasure it's at 7 p.m eastern everyone gets a recording and it's always a really lovely time we do a grounding meditation i talk about belting time and i share a message through the tarot for the group and for yeah this one i'm going to guide you through a breathwork experience to drop into presence with your body to cultivate self-love and to deepen your relationship with pleasure and i also share a ritual with you that you can do after the ceremony or the next day or whenever you want So you can check that out at the link in the description to join us. 10% of the proceeds will be going to the Okra Project to feed black trans people. So hope to see you there. And regardless, I really hope this episode inspires your practice. I hope it offers you some places to dig into and to, yeah, cultivate relationship with ancestry and with your traditions and yeah, maybe makes you think about making your own meaning and connecting with land where you are. So let's get into it. So I always like to start the show by hearing about your journey to getting to where you are. And yeah, I would just love to hear some of your story um, from, yeah, I know you grew up in evangelical Christianity like I did, <laughs> how you've yeah. gotten to this this place you're in now. <laughs> Sure. Um, So I guess the place that I am in now is, uh, I'd like to say a folkways practitioner um, more than pagan, because I think pagan has a lot of, um, it's kind of just like anything that's not Christianity and could could kind of mean a lot of different things. And I like to to try to the extent that I can to learn about and practice old folk practices that my ancestors would have practiced while while also making them fit the modern age. And um, I really believe that we shouldn't just blindly accept everything our ancestors did because it's a mix of things we resonate with and things that we don't. And I think we've, as human society, learned a lot and it's good to apply new ideas to old ways. Um, and I, my, so my family is evangelical, they still are, but my mom is like pretty pagan type of evangelical, I would say. Like we were allowed to, and she really, she was really into holidays. So we celebrated Halloween, and Easter, but like Easter Bunny and things that maybe some of the more hardcore evangelicals would have thought were kind of pagan. She would have 
treasure hunts on St. Patrick's Day where leprechauns would hide gold coins for us and we would go <clears throat> on scavenger hunts through the woods to find them. Um, we were allowed to read Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, I was not allowed to read Harry Potter. <laughs> so, she was really into fairies. Mm. And um, so I really feel like she is sort of a Christian pagan or like what she says and what she believes, but what she actually does are very different. Like the way <laughs> that she celebrates holidays are um, much more pagan than you might expect. So I think that set me up to appreciate a lot of the things that I appreciate, which are seasonal holidays and the wheel of the year and, um, and animism and land magic. So I think, although I was raised evangelical, um, it, it, it had like animism kind of woven into it, mm -hmm. though my parents would deny that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, that's really interesting to just hear you reflect on that because in my family thinking about holidays, like we got to celebrate Halloween and we got to have the Easter Bunny and all those things, but only because my dad really liked those things and my oh, mom yeah. didn't have them growing up. And we definitely would not have been celebrating Halloween without him. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think that um, maybe all the fear around Harry Potter was was well-founded because look at me now. I'm I'm like a pagan witch. So everything I, they feared has come true. And it is probably yes. Harry Potter. I made a joke about that to my parents last year and it did not land well. <laughs> they were like, I know I should have forbidden her from reading those yeah. satanic tomes. <laughs> Literally, they did not think it was funny, but I yeah, <laughs> love it. So, I guess I'm curious about how how you I guess got curious about working with your ancestors. Like, did you always know who the people that you came from were and the lands that you came from, mm. um, or how did that interest start? Yeah, my mom really led the way there too. She was always really interested in um, family history and would interview her mom, my grandma, and with us present. And she was really into recording her. So she would have like cassette tape recorder and ask her questions about her childhood and growing up on a farm <clears throat> in Northern Minnesota. Um, and then it's really funny. My dad is like <laughs> really into being Irish because our last name is McGuire. <laughs> and we're like, he's like 12% Irish. And like, they never mentioned all of the other. I mean, I knew that his mom was Polish. She was completely Polish American. But he was never proud of that. Like he was Irish. Uh -huh. So it's interesting how different ethnicities get like fetishized. And it's it's cool to be Irish, but not cool to be Polish mm -hmm. in certain contexts. Or like, I don't know, Irish has this mystique to it. And Polish, I think, is even now still viewed as kind of a lower class uh, white people. <laughs> so... Mm -hmm. 
So there's definitely like these hierarchies within how my family views their own history, which I think is really funny. Um, so, but, but I think they demonstrated like an interest in family history and, um, and, and then I took that farther where I did a lot of genealogy research and found out things that they didn't even know. Like they didn't really know, my dad didn't know he was German and He's more German than Irish, so <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't really <clears throat> taken off, though, <laughs> in his personal <laughs> mythology. <laughs> still just Irish. <laughs> He's still Irish, yeah. Um, so I did a lot of digging, and, um, and, but it's not just about genealogy to me. I really like learning about the folk practices and... Um, I guess, you know, the spiritual traditions, but I'm really not that interested in kind of the formal elements of folk practices, like which gods did they worship and what did those gods represent? And, you know, who was the arch god of the pantheon? Like, I feel like it's a little frustrating when you try to research uh, European paganism and it's really focused on like pantheons and gods. And mm-hmm. um, I feel like that does, to me, that's not really that important. What's important is like, what holidays do people celebrate and what foods did they cook on those holidays? And um, what plants did they collect? And um, how did they go about collecting them? Did they, did they leave offerings? Did they sing songs? Was Were there good times to harvest herbs and mm-hmm. um, how did, like, how did they actually embody those practices? So that's, um, that's what I've been really interested in finding out and, and putting into practice in my own life. And I think I, I have a desire for spirituality and maybe it came from being raised with an evangelical background, or maybe I would have had that regardless. I'm not sure, but there's definitely like a, a passion for it. And, um, a feeling like I want some kind of, uh, spiritual practice. So I could, um, since I've rejected my, the religion that I was raised with, I could, you know, kind of use like a, modern pagan spiritual uh, system, which is somewhat based on tradition, but like somewhat made up and kind of invented by certain people in, in the last century. Or I could try to find out what, what my ancestors were doing. And that feels um, really meaningful to me because then I feel connected to my ancestors and I feel like they they live in me, like they're part of my body, they're part of my DNA. And so having, um, <clears throat> doing things that they would have done uh, c- continues on those lineages more than kind of making up some sort of like new age thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, 
the thing that I appreciate so much about your work because in doing my own research or trying to do my own research around my personal ancestry and like their traditions and what they would have been doing um I found your work and it seemed like everybody else is just going kind of with like the sort of accepted Wiccan wheel here (laughs) which I think is fine and that's all good but I'm wondering if you could speak to, uh, like, what's the deal with the wheel of the year, and why do yeah. we have these like <laughs> these specific holidays around it? Yeah. So, um, I totally agree with you. If people love the wheel of the year, I think it's great. And when I first found it, I was like, "Oh, hallelujah!" I've been looking for this for the last ten years and didn't know what it was, and. I want to have a huge poster of it in my room (laughs) and do all of the things. (laughs) So I really like that it gives us a common language. So I don't want to um, be too negative about it because it's really fun, I think, to be in this virtual community where everyone's like, oh, it's in bulk. And, you know, we all kind of know what that is. and, and, And it gives us a shared language and a shared meaning. But... On the other hand, um, sometimes to me, it feels frustrating because it's not bioregional. And so sometimes the way that it's presented doesn't fit with the landscape that I live in. Mm-hmm. So in bulk is a really good example where um, people who live in warm places like California or even the Pacific Northwest will see in bulk as um, the beginning of spring and things are starting to maybe flower or bud or um, warm up. And for me, it's really the middle of winter. Like there is still a month and a half to two months of winter. So then I st- then I feel this dissonance where I want to participate in this fun, exciting, you know, holiday that's happening (laughs) in the sort of virtual pagan community but it's what everyone's saying it means is not what it means for me (laughs) Mm -hmm. so I um, really like the idea of having bioregional wheels of the year where you where you pay attention to the land where you're living and you understand what it means at different times and then explore what your ancestors called those holidays and see if they are different than what kind of the commonly accepted wheel of the year is, which um, several of the things on the wheel of the year are pretty much made up. So Ostara is, was never the name of the spring equinox, though it was, um, the name of the moon of April and became Easter, but that's more April and not really the spring equinox. And Mabon is uh, for the fall equinox is just totally invented. But there are actually lots of cool names for those times of the year. And depending on what culture you're looking at, you can find lots of different really beautiful celebrations and um, names of holidays. And they aren't all so linear, like the wheel of the year is so 
like equinoxes and solstices and cross quarters. And it's very evenly divided. And I don't think that any traditional culture celebrated all of those exact eight points at those exact times. Um, a lot of cultures were had lunar calendars. And so they were celebrating probably close to those holidays, but maybe a full moon or a new moon close to them, but not exactly on them. And then there's a lot of holidays that aren't really exactly on them, like Easter. Like it's mm -hmm. maybe, you know, it's in the month after the equinox, um, which for my landscape really actually fits when spring arrives better than the equinox. So, um, so I've, I've kind of moved away from the eight point wheel of the year uh, being such a kind of rigid system and going more on lunar um, calendars and also just what I notice in the land and trying to allow myself to celebrate those things when it feels like that's what's really alive. Mm -hmm. So like for February, it was below zero degrees Fahrenheit for like two weeks <laughs> where I live. Yeah. We've gotten the most snow of the entire winter since in bulk, since February. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, I do not feel like going outside and celebrating in bulk. And so we waited until it was finally warm this weekend. And so we did our in bulk celebration because it felt like, although it's still winter, it was a little bit warmer and we were kind of feeling like, Spring, like spring is on its way. It's not here, but winter is breaking. And, um, you know, we see spring coming down the horizon. So, so we just, we, we are really flexible in my family. I celebrate with my husband and my two children. And um, we really base our celebrations on what we see around us and like paying attention to um, the land and what's happening each year because each year could be different too. Yeah. Oh my God. There's so much here that I want to ask you about. <laughs> First, I just want to say that I really appreciate and it feels really healing to me to hear and see on social media and everything, the ways that people are involving their families and their children in these practices. I don't have kids, but um, it feels even just healing to know that people are doing that work with their kids and having these like land-based celebrations and ancestral based like honorings with their little people. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> um, and this is, this is making me want to ask you about belonging yourself to the land and what that means to you, what that looks like, feels like, and yeah, how you do that. Yeah. Um, that's a really potent question for me because I've felt a lot of, um, I guess, grief and also anxiety about that over the past few years. Um, I guess, like coming to understand how how the land was stolen and colonized and the trauma that was involved in that process and the injustice and um, 
like taking that was part of that process made me feel uh, like a lot of complicated feelings about belonging to the land because it feels like as somebody who is white and is descended from um, from settlers, like people who literally homesteaded on land that was extracted from uh, indigenous people. It, it feels um, like there's a lot of uh, ancestral debt that comes from living on this land. And so it's not just like a free ride to be like, yay, and now I can just go frolic through the forest and enjoy myself with, you know, with, with no care um, because of all of those wounds that, uh, that happened. Um, and so like, uh, I, I, I kind of felt like, well, this land doesn't really belong to me or to, um, you know, people who colonized it in, in a rightful way. And so if the land doesn't belong to us, can we feel belonging here? Um, because I think we associate those things in our minds. Like uh, I need to own land to feel connected to it. And um, that's just kind of a cultural construct, I think. Um, and coming from European history where a lot of European people were <clears throat> uh, basically kicked off their land and um, and pushed off, then they came to North America and perpetuated those same patterns to other people. So there is, I think, a ancestral wound that leads to like a graspingness where it's like, I need to feel secure on this land because I could get uh, thrown off at any time because that happened to my ancestors. Um, and that sort of like, it's almost like attachment theory with, with human relationships where if you feel like insecure attachment, you get really clingy and like desperate and um, have unhealthy uh, sort of need for reassurance. So I feel like that's playing out. And so I, I, I felt all of these feelings like, oh, should I even like feel connected to the land? Is that wrong? Um, and went through a lot of emotional process working through those questions. And then I feel like I've come to a, a place where I've decided for myself that the answer for me is that, um, that I belong myself to the land as a devotion and as a behavior. And it's not like a birthright. It's not like I'm, I'm born and I deserve, I deserve to have land or deserve to um, own land or be a citizen of this land. It's instead an ongoing relationship where I uh, show my love for the land through actions and through attention and offerings. Um, and 
this is really inspired by Tokopa's book, Belonging, where she talks about how belonging is, is like an action and is a process and you can belong yourself to all kinds of things. Like you can belong yourself to your art or your craft or your vocation and you can belong yourself to a community of people. Um, and so you get to choose who and what you belong yourself to. So, um, so we can belong ourselves to the land through our devotion to it and by advocating for it and by um, tending it. And that could even be like politically, like you can advocate for the land and, um, you know, make sure that good uh, policies are being enacted. And, you know, it's not all just abstract, uh, you know, in the spirit world, it's like real physical things too. So that's how I um, see it. And I feel like it, um, it puts it in a ongoing relationship of reciprocity mm-hmm. and, and I get to choose how I behave in that relationship. Yeah. And you've shared before about how ancestor work is not inherently anti-racist, although like it can be of course, and what you're sharing is making me want to ask you to, yeah, dig into that a little bit and your perspective on ancestor work and anti-racism. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, So sometimes I think people kind of present ancestor work like, oh, if you do ancestor work, you're you're doing anti-racism work. And I think that that can be true, but only if you do it with that intention, because (laughs) as I I think everyone knows, there are like tons of racist people who are really interested in ancestor work too. And and in fact, it's really hard to do ancestor work because uh, there's like tons of Nazis out there, you know, (laughs) like publishing tons of information about, you know, Valhalla and Thor and Odin and, uh, so it's like a sometimes it's a quagmire of <laughs> actually tons of white supremacy. So, um, but I think that ancestor work can be a really powerful part of anti-racism uh, work by helping us understand, um, like breaking down race and understanding that it was an invented concept and people <laughs> were, weren't considered white, you know? And so there's lots of like histories of who was white and who wasn't white and how that changed over time and, and um, how different ethnic groups were um, included or excluded. And, and so learning those kinds of things can help you break down you know, the history of what whiteness was. And then another thing about ancestor work that that helps put our current um, racist society in context is all of the trauma that um, 
has gone on across the world and how our ancestors both suffered from it and then also perpetuated it in a lot of cases. So uh, if you've read my, my grandmother's hands, there's a lot in there about the trauma of European people and how um, their, uh, the trauma that Europeans enacted upon each other was the model that then they used to enact upon black and brown bodies around the world. Uh, so it, it really helps to understand the history of that and how um, the wounds that we carry, like every, probably every person on earth, I don't know, maybe there's some people who don't, but um, most people on earth have, have are, are part of this like ongoing um, domino of wounding. And um, it gives, well, for me, it gives me compassion for my ancestors to understand um, a lot of the trauma that they went through. And uh, then, then they perpetuated that trauma in a lot of cases um, to uh, both other people that they othered, like indigenous people in North America, and then also their own descendants who, you know, then passed on the trauma to me. So, um, yeah, I think the other element of uh, ancestor work that I think helps with anti-racism is that if you, so that's kind of like understanding the, the wounding part and both like how we're, you know, recipients of wounds and perpetrators of wounds. But then there's like a really beautiful part where it's like, well, what's the good stuff? And <laughs> um, sometimes, I don't know, it seems like for a lot of white people, they feel like they have no culture, so they have to steal culture from other people. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's so much really interesting, beautiful um, culture in very diverse European um, you know, cultures that, that can feed us and teach us like how they viewed um, land tending, how they celebrated the seasons, how they viewed relationships within their community. And so that can teach us about like ethics that we might want to um, replace some of the extractive damaging parts of like capitalism and uh, modern culture with. Um, and just that it's uh, a really fun and, and life enriching <laughs> to know those things. Uh, and, and then it kind of gives us like something to bring to the table when we're at, when we are, you know, um, meeting with other cultures like this, somebody, uh, that I'm friends with on Instagram wrote to me and said, I'm from Brazil. And, um, my husband is white, like German, um, American. And I always want to tell him about Brazilian culture. And then he felt like he didn't have anything to share back and just like, oh, I'm just American. It's so bland and so boring. Mm -hmm. And so we started following your Instagram page. And now we like know all of these things about 
European culture. And so it becomes like a, this reciprocal exchange where we can, <laughs> she was like, I get to talk more about being Brazilian, which I want to do, <laughs> <laughs> but I want it to be like a back and forth and not just like one-sided. So, um, so I think it, it helps us like not need to appropriate from other cultures when we have something of our own. And, um, and it also like gives us something to share with other people. So uh, that, that makes us like good community members. <laughs> yeah. I mean, something that you shared in the class that I took with you that really, that I just remember that stood out um, was when you shared, like when you show up to like the feast of cultures and you're empty, like you don't have anything to exchange. You can't really be in exchange with those cultures. And what you're sharing really resonates with my experience. I felt like after I left Christianity, that that was the only culture that I had, that the culture of my white family was evangelical Christianity. So I really felt unrooted because that was not it for me but I had no idea what like my ancestors would have been celebrating and yeah I think this work can be really powerful in that regard too so I guess I'm wondering because I get this question a lot and I refer people (laughs) to other people like you to check out their work Um, but for people who have no idea about their ancestral traditions and practices? Like, is there a place they can start researching or trying to connect with those things? Yeah. Um, so one thing that that I'll offer, if, if somebody doesn't know any anything about um, like what cultures they might've come from, um, and, and if they, you know, they could always do a DNA test, though those are, you know, somewhat problematic and, you know, not always accurate, but um, I've done one and I thought it was pretty interesting. But uh, if you didn't want to do that, you could think of language as an ancestor. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I like to do because language shapes our worldview so much, like you know, you are both inspired and restricted by uh, Mm. the language that you speak. Um, So if you have words for things or don't have words for things or have more words for things, um, you know, it it, it really changes how you view the world. So if you speak English, which we are, so probably (laughs) most people who (laughs) listen to us will be speaking English. you can think of English as as an ancestor, and ancestry doesn't it, it doesn't always have to be about blood and like bloodlines. Um, I know that in your uh, most European cultures, if not all, um, kinship relations were formed in many ways besides mm-hmm. blood relatives. So people, you know, like you hear about fostering and that was maybe more of a thing of nobility, but like that was really important. Um, And you'd form kinship by like fostering your children with other people. And uh, the midwife who delivered you would be like a grandmother and would have the responsibilities and also the privileges of a grandmother. So you would need to like care for her 
your whole life and you could form uh, kinship relationships in other ways too. So it's not all about like, oh, what bloodline are you? And like, what, what does your DNA say? You could, um, you could, if you could decide that English is a cultural ancestor because we're speaking English and it's shaping our worldview. And so you might look at like what kinds of practices did English people do? And then English people are part of the larger Germanic culture group. And a lot of, you know, a lot of what we have in our culture is part of English and, and Germanic culture. So, um, you know, I, I think it's really fun to like kind of reclaim things that are, I don't know, like pop popular culture, but like make them, I don't know, I guess to like try not to go against the, the flow so much, but more like, um, I don't know, appropriate <laughs> popular culture to my own ends. Like let's celebrate Halloween, but like tell our kids that it's about, um, you know, honoring our ancestors. Like that's what we do in my house. We, mm-hmm we like, I don't, we, I don't call it Sawan or, or Kekri or uh, Zaduski or any of the <laughs> other ancestral terms. I, we just call it Halloween. Cause that's what all of his friends call it. Um, my child. And, and, but we talk about like how this is when our ancestors come back and we leave them offerings and we put up pictures for them. And so we bring in the spiritual meaning of it and reclaim that from being like completely commercialized. Um, So if you didn't know your ancestors and didn't want to like, you know, do a ton of research and and get a DNA test, you could look around like, what are the holidays that resonate with me? And uh, how can I reclaim them and make them meaningful? And then if you want to go deeper, um, you know, the resources kind of, diversify depending on which culture group you're part of. Um, I really like looking at the, there's like a language tree that of Indo-European languages. So you can see which ones are related to each other because there's really like only a few big groups. So a lot of times if people are like, oh, well, it's really hard to find things about like Dutch culture. Like, yep, that is true. But Dutch culture is part of the larger Germanic culture. Um, Norse culture is also part of Germanic culture. So if you can find things uh, like about English or German or Norse culture, you'll fit into that group. And maybe you won't know like really specific practices that your exact ancestors from a specific region did, but you'll kind of get like the overall um, big picture themes because they're um, they're actually like really pretty common across European cultures. Yeah, that's so helpful. Thank you for sharing that. And it's also making me think about what you mentioned earlier about food and ancestral foods. And that's something that I really like to think about and work with. And even with foods that 
my my ancestors way back when in Europe might not have been eating, but foods that feel connective to my ancestry to me, like how my grandparents grew tomatoes for years and years. Yeah. So tomatoes feel like an ancestral food regardless because they're connected to my grandparents and yeah. that feels like a way for me to connect. So yeah, I think it can be small too or closer. Yeah, for sure. And I think people, (laughs) we like to sort of fetishize the deep past so much and (laughs) like, um, and kind of gloss over the recent past and recent ancestors. And um, like, you know, I think we talked about this in one of our group calls that we had, uh, where like, if your grandma made like cinnamon rolls for Easter or something, that's just as <laughs> as great as, you know, like some really ancient, you know, special Slavic recipe. <laughs> I don't know. It could be like jello salad or something. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> and I also think about that in terms of ancestral healing. Like I think about how my grandparents, my ancestors who were alive during like the civil rights movement, they weren't doing anything. They weren't involved with those movements. They weren't, they were passive bystanders, basically continuing to like uphold white supremacy, not really actively as far as I know, but with not being involved in trying to create change and justice and so like I know that I don't have to go that far back to see that and understand that and so a way also that feels like ancestral healing and just important work regardless to be doing is to be involved in those movements and trying to do my part to create justice and yeah 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 we um so there's a Nordic women's group in the Twin Cities. And um, one of my teachers in that group is Kari Toring. And she talks a lot about um, how ancestral debt is considered to be um, something that's passed along from generation to generation in Germanic culture. Mm-hmm. And so um, <clears throat> it's a uh, it's something, it's not something that like you're, you're supposed to feel like guilty about. It's not like an emotional thing. It's just like, hey, this was a wrong that was done and it hasn't been corrected. And so you need to take some action to resolve it. And obviously we're, you know, each one person in this huge system. So as an individual, we're not going to solve it completely just just as like one individual wasn't responsible for creating it, but um, we are responsible for doing what we can to address it and, and pay that ancestral debt because we do hold it. And so that, that's like an example of how um, understanding like a a more uh, traditional root culture view of ethics can help us um, feel like empowered and, um, motivated and resourced to, to do like social justice work. Like it is actually, um, honoring our ancestors to address debts that they have, whether they were like, you're saying more of like debts of 
in action or whether they were like actually um, involved and have debts of like more specific debts of, of action. Um, you know, we still uh, are responsible for trying to resolve those. And, um, and then like when you do that work, it does heal those, um, those obligations. And, uh, you know, some people feel like it helps their ancestors feel more um, at peace, like in an afterlife. Uh, other people just feel like that's that's our moral duty as as human beings, and so uh, to to be honorable, we need to do that. Um, and you know, either way, I don't think it it makes a huge difference. But it, other than that, it um, teaches us what right what right relationship is and how to be in right relationship. And then when we've done what we can and the, and to the ability that we have, then, um, you know, we can feel that we are being um, honorable members of our, of our lineages. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's like the concept that I've first heard from Layla Saad articulate, but the concept of being like good ancestors now yeah. to future descendants, whether we have kids or not. Yeah. Which feels really important. Yeah. So I know we're running short on time and I really wanted to ask you if you'd like to share um, something about a holiday or tradition or two from your ancestry around the time that this episode is coming out, like end of April, beginning of May. Yeah. Well, um, so there are a lot of, you know, there's like a lot of info about Beltane. So I think I won't talk about that too much, but um, there's a, a festival that's a little bit later in May, actually like kind of the end of May, early June called Green Week. And it's a Slavic practice that kind of welcomes in summer. Um, and so it's kind of similar to Beltane in, in some ways where it's an emphasis on the greenery, like the greenery has finally arrived and maybe throughout April and May, it's still unfurling and sort of fresh. And then um, when you get to green week, it's fully green. And so um, they would have, uh, they bless the fields and one of the ways that they blessed the fields was to tie a birch sapling and like bend it over so that the, the tip of the tree was coming from the side of the field where the forest might be and then like uh, being embedded in the field. And so it was thought that the birch tree was a really sacred tree. And, um, and it was symbolic of sort of the feminine side of nature and fertility. And so they were bringing this, I guess, the vitality of the wilderness represented by the forest at the edge of the field into the field. Mm. So I really like that. And then um, another thing that they would do was they would make a, a circle out of the willow, uh, or sorry, not willow, um, birch. They'd make a circle out of the birch branch and um, then friends would kiss through it 
And it was a way of devoting yourself in friendship to each other. And so this was something that young women would do as they'd kiss through this birch wreath. So I really like that, um, <laughs> that practice. And I, I hope when the pandemic is over, we can do some of those things again. But then there's a little bit of a like um, dark side to Green Week in that the Rusalka, who are the, they were water spirits and they would live in rivers and they were always thought of as feminine, but they were kind of unsettled spirits. And they, in, so in some folklore, they were said to be women who uh were murdered by like jealous uh, fathers be maybe they like um, you know uh, like had sex before marriage or something and so they were like spoiled and so they'd be drowned or they got pregnant um, before they were married and then their lover would kill them and drown them and so they were like um, they were like considered very dangerous because they were um, like dishonorably murdered people who um, <clears throat> like they could haunt the village. And so I don't know, like this is kind of my interpretation. So I'm not sure if this is um, exactly accurate to the folklore, but I like to think of it as like a warning. Like you, if you are, um, not treating people well. And if you're viewing people as expendable and if they have violence done against them, they can become like dangerous, um, unsettled ghosts who can um, kind of threaten the safety of the community into the future. Mm -hmm. And so they would be, try. people would try to um, kind of, help them find peace in the afterlife by giving them offerings. And so people would be like bringing food offerings to uh, trees that are growing along the river and to rivers to try. Um, this is the way I see it as to try to like um, help them find peace and like maybe even to ask forgiveness for not having been caring for them in, in, in their lives. Mm. So to me, like I interpret that in the modern context of like who in our community is viewed as expendable and who are we like not caring for whose bodies are being harmed with violence or just like not being uh, valued in our society. And, um, you know, so they're like, you could see that as unsettled ghosts of our collective um, culture. So people who, who have like suffered through oppression, um, you know, might have, uh, might, might benefit from offerings that we could give them to ask for forgiveness and then actions that we can do. And um, so I, I feel, I feel like this time is a really good time for me spiritually to try to engage in like activism and, um, and like use the traditions of my ancestors, which were not necessarily 
framed in this way, but I frame it this way as like, this is um, a celebration of growth and vitality and the renewal of nature. But also this is a reminder that like, I need to be looking out for like, who are the modern Rusalka of our society that I should be watching out for to make sure that they don't become, um, you know, like hungry ghosts that were not, um, we're not honored by our culture. So, so that we aren't perpetuating this, uh, this problem. So that's like my, like two angles on a holiday where there's both like a beauty to it. And then there's like a call to action and a prompt to like, you know, address social justice. Yeah, that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that and for sharing everything. I want to ask you the last question that I always ask on this show, um, which is just because the name of the show is Living Open. What does Living Open mean to you? What comes up when you hear that? <laughs> um, hmm, that's... I think maybe there's so many layers that come to mind. So I think the one that is like coming up the most for me is uh, being open to um, a flow of ideas and open to like be holding multiple conflicting viewpoints as being potentially simultaneously um, real. <laughs> and that's something that that I think was really hard for me to understand being raised evangelical Christian, where it's like, there's one right way to view things. And one, there's one right, like one truth and like one God and one path. And, um, <laughs> uh, and then becoming an adult and realizing like, wow, people could, like a hundred people could view this situation differently and they could all be right <laughs> and <laughs> being able to hold my mind open to that possibility um has been really powerful for me because I've I've been like really um kind of a linear thinker and like a dualistic thinker um so like even when do like when working in um anti-racism kinds of work it's really helpful to be like oh yeah I can see how this is really triggering for people and also it's really true you know at the same time and like both of those two perspectives are real and I can like hold them in my mind and understand them um simultaneously (laughs) And I don't have to choose that like one's right and one is wrong. I can be open to like infinite possibilities and it helps me, um, it helps me understand humans so much better. (laughs) Yeah. Being open to infinite possibilities feels so beautiful. And I think we could probably have its own hour long conversation about deconstructing binary thinking after (laughs) Christianity. Yeah. 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 That resonates a lot. Um, can you let people know where they can find you and maybe if there's anything that you have going on or coming up that you want to tell people about? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so probably the best place to find me is Instagram. I'm at forest.whisperer. And I post a lot of things there. I have um, a website that you can find through there. It's living in mythic time. And um, I'm sure you can provide a link. I am currently doing like a sort of class where it's a self-led journey through Lent because that's that's the season that it is now. And um, I really like the idea of reclaiming Lent as a pagan practice. (laughs) I love that. Like the least (laughs) pagan thing. (laughs) I don't know. I I have kind of this like um, rebellious nature to me where I'm like, oh, that's like the least pagan thing (laughs) in the wheel of the year. I'm going to make it pagan. (laughs) So right now I'm trying to do like a pagan Lent. so I don't know. I, I'm not sure when this podcast comes out, if I will have anything going on um, or not. I, I kind of just do it when I feel the creative inspiration. And um, I have a day job, so I don't like always have classes or always have like um, content going on. Uh, and I, I try to make a lot of my things free because um like accessibility is really important to me. So, you know, there might be some things happening. Um, People should just check when they, when this comes out and see. Um, I do know that at the end of the summer, um, my friend and teacher, Lara Valeda Vesta is going to um, like re-host the Feast of of the Three Sisters that we did together last summer. So that's uh, midway through August through um, the middle of September. And so there's a lot there about like harvest practices and the Norns, the three fates and Mary as a um, sort of vegetation goddess of summer. So for sure, that'll be going on um, when we created that together last year and she's going to be hosting it again this year. So um, for sure, that'll be one offering that that I've helped create. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And I'll definitely put all the links in the description so people can check it out. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.